What's this? Is there anything to do with me? Yeah. If you don't press anything, you'll be fine. No, we don't. You can actually put that in the drawer. Yeah. The drawer. Okay. Now, could I run sound off this, uh, Calvin? I can make it happen for you. Give me one second. Getting your stream up and running. Anybody mind if I eat my lunch? Me too. Well, I don't think it's going away. I think it's here to stay. Yeah. This is the maestro here. This is Calvin Pote. Calvin is a musician, actually. I saw Calvin uh, as the uh, DJ at uh, Soundgarden. Calvin uh, does... Uh, music on the computer, synthesizer, and uh, so he's emerged uh, over the years as uh, one of the uh, pillars of the CRDC, the Curriculum Redevelopment Center. The CRDC's mandate is to digitalize the curriculum, so that's what we're engaged in here. This is a uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll formally begin the, the process and say that I am Anthony Hall. The date is Wednesday, September 13th. There's a huge traffic snarl just outside of the uh, university. Uh, there's a tragic shooting at Dawson College in Montreal where somebody came in with a, um, a gun and... Uh, killed many people in some kind of psychotic uh, episode. Um, so uh, it's uh, obviously going to be uh, something difficult. Uh, and whenever this happens in a post-secondary institution, it's going to affect all the post-secondary institutions. So uh, this is uh, the second class in a course called Money, Culture, and Globalization. We're here at the University of Lethbridge, and I'm going to introduce uh, Professor Mark Spooner. Uh, sometimes we refer to him as Spooner Man. And, uh, well, Tony does. Yeah, Spoon Man. I met Mark last summer in the University of Ottawa, where Mark was pretty well the uh, uh, presiding uh, I won't say genius, I won't say leader, but anyway, he was uh, very instrumental in, in the 
Graduate Students Union at the University of Ottawa, especially with a place called the Cafe Nostalgica. And uh, so we began to compare notes. We went to an event in the Gatineau, a group of uh, Canadian post-secondary students are trying to start a new university, a new U. And so we spent the weekend with 30 or so other folks talking about what a new Canadian university of the 21st century would look like. At that time, um, Professor Spooner uh, was on the verge of becoming Dr. Spooner. He was finishing up his PhD thesis. He had a good prospect for a job in Regina. In fact, it uh, bore fruit. And uh, so the University of Regina was very uh, lucky to grab up uh, Dr. Spooner with his new PhD. So Dr. Spooner is uh, just at the moment where he is making the transition from being a, a graduate student to a full-fledged professor in the uh, Faculty of Education at the University of Regina. And we did a hookup out of University of Ottawa last year, and Frank was there, and uh, uh, Professor Roncourt was uh, stirring it up. Uh, Professor Roncourt is involved with UWatch, uh, and we'll talk tonight a bit about uh, a site called UWatch. Uh, Mark has been deeply involved in that site, and I think uh, the webmaster will be watching in Ottawa, Evan Thornton, and uh, they're starting to put up video iPods. So I've invited Mark to uh, work with me on this course and on this type of education, on this type of pedagogy, which uh, takes place as much as possible, as interactive as we can be, using the new media to make connections uh, with other uh, places. So uh, we'll start... Uh, um, well, this is modest in a sense in that we're, we're Regina is not that far away. Uh, it's uh, one individual, but a, a very uh, important individual in the emerging uh, uh, intellectual life of uh, Western Canada, the University of Regina. Uh, so I'm proud to uh, introduce Mark Spooner and uh, uh, anticipate that Mark may not be here every week, uh, but will be a, a regular participant. And uh, please think of Mark as a sharing responsibility for the pedagogy for the curriculum of the course. Uh, I'll be taking responsibility for marking the course and whatnot, but uh, uh, the idea is to build up a network. And uh, I'm going to introduce... You, you can uh, press that green button in front of you there, Howard. Howard uh, Forsythe, Dr. Forsythe, is uh, visiting us this evening. Dr. Forsythe is, uh, I think, uh, one of the uh, very uh, engaged, uh, thought-provoking, um, pundit commentators. And now I can say you are fully a politician. You did r r run in a recent uh, election, Howard. Howard was... Um, uh, lived for many years in uh, Washington, D.C., after growing up in southern Alberta in Raymond. And uh, Howard, I know, for a time worked in the Pentagon, 
uh, Howard works for uh, the Ministry of the Interior and is a, I guess you could say you were a policy wonk in uh, Washington over the years. Howard is uh, a mere 94 years old and is uh, uh, you know, very, very engaged in uh, uh, the community. Could you, uh, you press the button, I think your mic, so uh, is that a fair introduction, Howard? Or did I? Yeah, that's pretty good. <clears throat> I'm old enough that if there are any archaeologists in the group, I'd like to have them study my bones and see what kind of professors. <laughs> because uh, I, I grew up in the, in the 20s. That's quite a while ago. And once in a while in the columns I write every two or three weeks for the Westwood Herald, I say that I'm nearly 100 years old. So I, I, I see... Uh, Things. I see the course of civilization moving fairly steadily and then going whoosh. Uh, North America was 80% farm and village when I was young. Now it's 80% urban. But uh, now we can go back to rural. And I have three pieces of farmland in the Carson grass area ready for housing for people who want to go back to see nature in this part of the world. It's been there for hundreds of thousands of years when the buffaloes grazed it, and there's never been plowed, some of it, so it's absolutely virgin. So this is a great, this is the, this corner of Alberta is the best winter climate in Canada because of this past year, we didn't get winter until February the 15th. And January, February, March is better than Victoria. And uh, we're better in Regina, incidentally. I don't worry when. But uh, yeah. Victoria and Vancouver get rain all the time. Uh, we get a little bit of snow. And the next day, out in front of me on Phoenix Drive, the snow's all gone. So we don't get winter, really. Nobody knows that the climate moves on a 45 degrees from Alaska, Yukon, Florida, and then turns around on 45 degrees and goes out by Newfoundland. So they think we're cold, but we know better. Thanks, Howard. Uh, Mark, would you like to uh, say a couple of words uh, at this stage, or shall we uh, just go into the uh, body of the class? Well, one, I'd like to say thanks for the introduction. It was very flattering and probably not completely accurate. <laughs> I missed the beard, Tony, on you. I mean. But what I want to say is it's a great honor and pleasure to be part of this uh, technology-assisted inter-institutional, inter-faculty collaboration. And I think that it's only the beginning of what technology can offer us. And I'd like to thank you for giving me the impetus to uh, shed my Luddite ways and embrace this technology that I've been resisting because I now see the power in it and that's because of uh, visionaries such as yourself. So it's a great honor to be here and I look forward to the collaborations and I like the way that we challenge the very notion of institutions themselves and how here we are collaborating, uh, University of Regina, University of Lethbridge and uh, it's uh, again a great honor to be here. Well, thanks, Mark. So if we can go to the document camera. Okay. 
And uh, now I, I know that uh, the the style and approach that I take is probably already generating a bit of anxiety about you know what can be tested. I would uh, I would like to uh, suggest that uh, uh, I'm trying to depict the globe as it is now, as it became this way. It's a big place in a way, the globe. And uh, so there, there's many elements to be considered, many perspectives to be considered, many distinct peoples to be considered, uh, many disciplines to be considered, many um, ideologies to be considered. So how does one uh, speak about the world as it is, as it has unfolded until this time? Uh, as I've come to see it, it's uh, necessary to make some links and sometimes to make some startling um, connections that might not feel uh, quite normal in the way that uh, other courses are taught. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, in a sense, integrate, uh, present an integrated picture of different aspects of the world now, there's information to be presented, information that you want to assimilate, but there's also a, an approach, uh, a, a process, if you, if you like, a way of thinking about things or a strategy for handling knowledge. And I would suggest that uh, with the Internet now, there is a, such a new challenge to deal with uh, the reality that we those of us who are wired on the net, have access to, you know, it's not 500 times or a 1,000 times. It's like millions and millions of times more information available on just about any subject you can imagine. And, you know, how, what are we to do with that? What are, what, what are we to make of that? How are we to handle that? So part of uh, what I'm going to be doing in the next, 12 weeks, is suggesting and giving uh, uh, some tips, well, this is how I'm trying to handle it, this is how I'm trying to uh, have an approach that I can interpret the world, and it's just, we're just not all the time being overwhelmed with uh, unconnected data and information, and, and if, if you don't get a sort of point of view and a way to interpret all this information, you're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be lost. But at the same time, I know that uh, uh, at midterm there's going to be a test, we're in a traditional course. Uh, Professor Roncourt just in, at the University of Ottawa just went through a long period. Now Mark, we're picking up a lot of the desk sounds, and it's very exaggerated. I don't know if we can Sorry. use that on, on our end, or, but... Uh, just these little kinds of things. Uh, it's, that's good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of exaggerated, the, the desk noises or whatever at this end. So, um, yes, Professor Roncourt, he, he, he's teaching a course in activism. The students are largely generating the subject matter. And he finds that the grading system is, uh, is uh, a, a diversion away from real education. That's how he looks at it. So he's doing a pass-fail system. You either, you either fail the course or you pass the course, and that's it. And uh, we're not doing that. So we're going to do, you know, traditional tests, written tests, 
uh, and we break away from all the digital work and you're going to write out uh, short answers in the midterm test describe and give the significance of. So tonight I'm, I'm signaling to you that uh, if we go back to the document camera that uh, I want to cover um, and I want you to be uh, ready say by next week to consider Lilio Kulani. Lilio Kalani. She is was the final queen of Hawaii, and she was deposed, and the uh, United States sent in military and took over Hawaii in 1893. So um, we'll talk about her tonight. We'll talk about uh, a group I'm working on, Volume Two of of uh, Bowl with One Spoon. And I became fascinated with the Philippines with a, a group that calls themselves the Bangsamur. The Bangsamur are largely centered around the uh, South Island of Philippines. Uh, they come from many distinct Aboriginal groups, uh, and yet they're all Islamic. And so they have developed this consciousness of their identity as Bangsamoro people. And so there's a lot of history that we can uh, uh, look at in looking at the Bangsamoro people. I uh, tonight want to uh, investigate the uh, amazing amount of material on the web having to do with something that is being called the Truth Movement or the 9-11 truth movement. And there is a, a huge uh, contention that uh, doesn't get reported too much in the commercial press, but on the World Wide Web, there is a very uh, large constituency, actually many different constituencies who, who maintain and assert that the official story of what happened on 9-11 is not what happened. And then there's all kinds of uh, theories about what happened and all kinds of theses uh, uh, presented that the, that the buildings couldn't have fallen in that way, the, you know, that the planes couldn't have created that, that type of effect, that the third power that came down with no plane going into it you know, looks like a, an obvious demolition, that there was no plane that actually went into the Pentagon that the proper procedures when a plane goes off course weren't followed, and on and on and on. So I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, I'd like to, uh, rather than say this is the true story and that's the, not the true story, I think it's a good uh, case study for us to look at uh, the main theme of tonight's lecture, which I'll get at in a, in a minute. Um, I'd like you to... Uh, be able to identify uh, a period in history and a phenomena that is known as the Enlightenment. And uh, the siècle des Lumières is often associated with the 18th century, which means the 1700s. And this was a time when uh, there was great uh, tumult, a lot of uh, challenging of different kinds of authority, especially the authority of monarchy, especially the authority of the church. 
Uh, it's a time when uh, science really started to take uh, shape, and it was largely a matter of uh, resisting religious interpretations and saying we're not just going to accept uh, biblical texts, sacred texts, and the whole church hierarchy. We're going to uh, try to understand truth through our reason, and uh, uh, and uh, tonight we'll look at. Uh, I'll put you watch there, Mark. We'll put you watch as a uh, as a, uh, a topic. You watch. Uh, can you tell us a bit about you watch site, Mark? It's a nonprofit organization that was uh, founded by members of the graduate student community at the University of Ottawa, but meant for students, professors, and other interested parties across Canada. We look at the increasing commercialization of universities, and as well as if they're fulfilling their mandate of uh, doing public interest research and performing a public service, and we feel that that's being increasingly eroded by commercial interests. So basically that would be the overview of the site, I think. Yeah, I've got the site up, Calvin. Okay. If you go to the, well, there should be a blog there from today. Yeah. You see it about uh, grants, not loans. If you, yeah, go read more. If I don't want to be a liberal leader argues for student grants, read more. Yeah. Okay. See, see there's some of the features of the site, just kind of blogging, newsworthy, uh, stories that we might find interesting as students and as uh, members of the university community. But the other feature of the site that might also be of interest is the Corporate Connections Database, which maps the uh, Board of Governors of every university across Canada and demonstrates their political or corporate affiliations. Um, and yet that's searchable by university, by corporation, or by individual. Now, I think I, think I can say that there is an agenda here that the agenda is that, uh, from the perspective of the people who, who, who made you watch happen, who are on the board of directors who made the site happen, uh, that there's a concern that, uh, universities are becoming too closely married with, uh, private corporations. And that, uh, the system is being, uh, uh, privatized in different ways, um, that the, uh, agenda of other types of institutions that is not first and foremost higher education is uh, is gradually undermining some of the uh, atmosphere in the university that makes uh, the pursuit of truth and understanding for its own sake viable. And transparent. Transparent, okay. Oh, yeah, I have an insight. Now you got to press the green button there, Howard insight on this. Uh, at my age, I'm now overwhelmed with the observation that economics has taken over civilization. I say civilization consists of three great sectors, economics, government, which is political science and university, community, and family, which is sociology and university. And, and I can't believe how totally messed up we are with Dollars, look at the billionaires we produce. Look at everybody gambling all the time, thinking they're going to get lots of money. 
You think of all of the categories where hardly anything is worth talking about or doing unless it's related to production. The City Council of Lethbridge, as a matter of fact, my good friend Bob Carlick, I wish you were listening again, I keep telling him, we talk about grow, grow, grow for Lethbridge, which means get bigger. I say get better before you get bigger. There's a lot of other things. Two of the best words in civilization are citizen and community. We now have a great sector of our population are plus 60, retired. We've got 40 more years to do something useful for government and community, which is far more important than the economy. If it weren't for them being done right, we'd be out digging for berries and frog's legs. There would be no economy. We don't understand. Well, it, let, I think we're, we're jumping quite far ahead here, but, you know, we, we live by those corporations. We live on that economy. Our we depend upon it. It's our life support system. Uh, now, we can talk about the life support system behind the economy, you know, the, the biology, you know, the, the uh, replication of plants and animals and, and, and talk about it in those terms. But uh, um, I think to jump ahead and say, you know, they we're too preoccupied with, uh, with economics, well, I mean, you know, that, that may be so, but I think there, there's a... Uh, a gut reaction that this is our life support system right now. Maybe we maybe we need to consider going into another approach. But right now uh, we depend on this. I, I'll I'll try not to uh, go in in that direction too much right now, Howard. I'll just present tonight's topic. If we can go to the uh, to the board, to the yeah. Just, uh before you move on about UOTS, I'd like to say in the name of transparency that uh, I would be remiss not to mention Evan Thornton again, whose hard labor keeps UOTS running. And I just want to be clear that that blog is his and that a lot of the work and content that UOTS features is as a direct result of Evan's caring and uh, labor. So I just want to be clear on that. Yeah. Thank you. Kevin uh, may come out uh, and see you and maybe visit him over here. Um, and uh, Kevin is closely connected to the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, and uh, I think they make it possible to some extent uh, for him to devote the time he does. Uh, I want to start with uh, something very, uh, a very basic question. How do you, how, where do we start? What is going to be our approach? Uh, so let's start, if we can go to the document camera, we're there. What is truth. So that's uh, tonight's topic. What is truth? How do we tell what is true from not if, what is not true? How do other people do it? Is there, is there, for instance, a kind of lens that we might associate with culture? or we might associate with religion. And imagine uh, through this lens, different, uh, different uh, lenses now. Is there one truth to be perceived in all these, you know, from all these different uh, directions? Or does each one point in a, to another set of truths 
and you have different truths that seem to be contradictory be true at the same time. So, so how do we identify truth? Now, when we talk about truth, uh, well, uh, let's think of other words. Validity. Valid. Um, oftentimes, we'll run into a concept uh, identified with uh, reason. In court, you'll often find uh, the word, what would a reasonable p person ascertain to be um, the situation? Uh, so what is this instrument uh, known as reason? And uh, how, do we, um, how do we apply our reason? So uh, I, I would like to suggest that there's kind of two schools here. That uh, um, there is uh, an approach which we might call relative relativity, and there's an approach that says no, things are absolute. There's an absolute truth or or, or not. Uh, Relativity, you know, there was cultural relativism. In the uh, early 20th century, Franz Boas, an anthropologist, started saying this whole idea that you could uh, identify groups that are backward, that are Stone Age, that are primitive, uh, the evolutionary theory that Humanity takes uh, goes through the same stages that all humanity is in the process of of being uh, of moving towards higher levels of civilization. So to get to civilization, you, you go through savagery, then you go through barbarism, then you go through um, civilization. Uh, Boaz said that's too absolute. You can't uh, understand the people unless you're able to um, assimilate their worldview and get inside their thinking and their culture. And uh, and so he he spoke about relativism as a as a cultural concept. Um, Einstein spoke about relativism as a as a scientific concept is a hard science saying the theory of relativity, the general theory of relativity, uh, it involves the observation that time is not fixed, that it depends what trajectory you're moving in the universe through. And as, as you approach the speed of light, time actually slows down. I guess if you if you think of uh, looking at the uh, stars at night, we know that those um, stars, in fact, they're great distance away, many of them from from Earth, and it, sometimes it takes millions of years for the light to get here. So, in fact, when you're looking at the stars, 
it's not right now in time. What we're seeing is in some, some of them might be a thousand years ago, some of them might be a hundred million years ago. You know, we're actually looking, when you look at the stars, into the reality that time is actually kind of fragmented. And, uh, and time and space, it turns out, are not fixed. So this uh, term relativity became very powerful in the 20th century. And, you know, we use it all the time. Well, how are you doing? Are, are you prepared for your exam? Well, I'm relatively prepared. That's kind of hedging your, your bet a bit. Yeah, I'm prepared, but not absolutely prepared, not perfectly prepared. Uh, you can see that relativity uh, becomes a way that we deal with a lot of the realities that, you know, with different religions, with different cultures, uh, people, what one group sees as a crime, another group can see as a, as a, as a great uh, asset, a, gra a great benefit. So, I think we could identify um, relativity with this concept of being a liberal. Liberals are kind of, uh, some absolutists might say liberals are kind of wishy-washy. They kind of go along with this and that, even if it doesn't all make sense. And it's not all consistent. Uh, it, you go along with it. Now, now the, the relativists, uh, have created quite a backlash among absolute fundamentalists. And you can imagine that uh, uh, you can look at this idea, well, once you start to say, well, this can be true, that can be true, uh, maybe they're inconsistent, but we, we can live with both of these positions. Uh, you can look at that and say, well, that has a great danger of becoming totally nihilistic. Like, once you, once you, like a slippery slope, once you start to open up your, your morals, you know, you can say, okay, gay marriage, um, well, next thing, why not polygamy? I mean, once you, once you, uh, once you start to open your definitions, you can just keep going and going and going. So, absolutists would say, uh, those relativists are in danger of becoming amoral, no morality. Uh, you start to, you know, they, they don't seem to believe in anything. They don't seem to have any true conviction. So, uh, so you get, uh, you, know, you get a, a backlash. You get some people saying, for instance, abortion is wrong. You know, abortion is murder. And uh, so we, you know, the state has to intervene to stop this kind of uh, murder. Uh, and liberals might say, "Look, I, I wouldn't get an abortion. I don't want my daughter to get an abortion. But who am I to say if a person has worked through it? They've gone to their minister. They've worked through their conscience. How, who, who am I to say to somebody else, my morality has to?" Uh, overwhelm your morality, that, that my sense of right and wrong trumps your sense of right and wrong. So um, you can start to see uh, the um, this tension. And of course, uh, religious uh, religious um, conviction 
tends to be quite absolutist. Well, God revealed these things. God explained this through his, his own son. God gave us a text, and that text is uh, the code, and that text is the highest form of truth that can ever uh, be available to human beings. In fact, Christ died on the cross to, to, to render uh, the, the extent of his sacrifice, uh, that it be known that he is the Son of God, that the, that the uh, gospel is true. Uh, so you can see that there is a, a great tension there. There's a, you know, you can see this in um, Islamic world, where uh, some in Islam say, you know, we, we don't uh, think that uh, we need to go to these extremes. Uh, others in the Islamic world saying, look, we need to have our, our government as our religion. That's the, that's the highest uh, form of, uh, of uh, Allah's Revelation. So um, then, when we when we um, put into this mix, uh, well, the course has the word money, and I think it's possible to think of. Uh, I can't see the uh, money. Uh, money is pretty absolute. When you put down your um, bank card and you go to pay for your meal and it says insufficient funds, really the person uh, who's, uh, they don't want to hear your hard story about what happened. I mean, uh, living in a capitalist world, it's pretty absolute when it comes to the question of, of money. Money talks, bullshit walks. I think I heard uh, that phrase the other day. Uh, and there definitely is a kind of view that, uh, that the market represents a kind of natural law. That the market represents the ultimate in liberty. That the, uh, that the system of buying and selling, that the relationship between supply and demand as, as the fixer of prices, that all of this has a certain eloquence and it represents a kind of maximum of freedom. That any uh, idea that you're going to have a, a central committee make these decisions, uh, do planning like they did in the Soviet Union, uh, like socialists would like to do, that this represents a kind of infringement upon uh, freedom. So there is, I think, a kind of uh, market uh, fundamentalism. So, um, at that point, uh, Mark, are you, uh, are you ready to uh, comment a little bit or before I proceed? Yes, um, if there's time, I'd like to. Yeah. Do you have a few minutes? Yeah. I, I think when you talk about the nature of truth, you're talking about also, you mentioned uh, you know, relativism as opposed to absolutism, and I think it might be useful for your students and for us just in general to think about, you probably have heard of the word ontology. And ontology is a good word to know. It's basically just what do you feel is the nature of reality? So do you feel that there's a reality out there, external to you, that you can 
try to perceive. And the only reason that we don't measure it completely or completely accurately is because we're using flawed human instruments. But we're always at a step closer and closer to achieving this ability to perceive reality as it is out there. And then on the relativist side, you have the people who believe that reality is constructed. You construct reality. And so um, you can never really achieve perfect uh, isomorphism with, with reality because there's, they're different for everybody. And, and we could take a good example is uh, your sweater, let's say, Tony. We can agree that there's a sweater there. That's not the argument. Uh, sometimes people would present that, well, I argue if reality is so uh, socially constructed, I'd like to say that that sweater is not there. But, but the true argument is really what does that sweater mean to you as opposed to me? I see it here and it's blue. Um, you know, someone of significance may have given you that sweater. So to you, that sweater means something very different than it does to me. And I think that helps maybe for students to understand the difference between a constructed view of reality, a relativist view, or an absolute objective view of reality, a reality that's received from outside, an external reality. I don't know, is that useful? Well, of course, science uh, is the where is the central form, I suppose, where where we're where we have the hardest kind of arguments about what is true and what is not true. Uh, it seems to me when we hook up all these uh, switches in the room here, uh, and it works. Lo and behold, it works. I mean, it, it does suggest that there is some actual truth there that that. Uh, you know the electricity is flowing. That uh, that uh, it's not just all um, opinion about what color it is, or um, that there is actually some identifiable um, aspects of what goes on in nature, and that science is able to uh, to clarify that. And of course, in in order for science to get moving, uh, there was a, a terrible uh, clash with the church. Um, let me, um, yeah. Now you've got, just get in the habit of, yeah. Can we differentiate between a physical and a mental reality? Or is it, is it the same thing? I mean, I can touch the table and I can touch your shirt. And that's, that's reality to everybody. But on the mental side, that's what is sort of the gray area. Everybody can't see and touch and test that. The mental side. And yet, you know, they, that table that you're touching, it's just your perception that, that it's a table. It's Getting pretty philosophical now. Yeah. Well, more, more than that, I, I would say that you should also add emotion into it because the notion that humans think without emotion is a false reality too, I would say. I think that that table means a lot, many different things to you than it will be to, to, than it does to me. When you write your test and that table's holding your test and you don't know the answer, let's say, your feelings towards that table may be quite differently than, than mine will be. And, and so emotion is part of human thinking. And to, to, to proffer the argument that humans can do otherwise, I think, is the old fish in water debate. That, you know, you are surrounded by things that you can't separate. Humans think in emotional terms, and I think uh, in relative terms, I, I would argue. I'm a, a staunch social constructionist. Although I entertain the notion that I might want my doctor, let's say, to be a bit more objective. I want to know, does this drug work? Did it lower white blood cell count or something like that? But I might also want to know, what did that drug make me feel? How did it make me feel? Because if, if it works but makes me feel 
more sick than actually the disease, the disease that it's trying to cure, then, uh, you know, again, we can't separate these things. This is an important thing to consider. Uh, Schultes, have you heard of the uh, ethnobotanist Schultes? Uh, his uh, research involved going into Amazonia and uh, studying the shamans, the healers, and many of those healers use uh, hallucinogenic drugs. And Schultes, who is very famous at Harvard and has identified tens of thousands of new plants out of the Amazon, part of his research was to take the drugs that these shamans had um, identified and experience the, uh, you know, he was, I guess, the very sort of legendary in Harvard in the, in the sort of peak of the hippie era. You know, his students uh, uh, would, I guess, talk about this, this uh, professor. But to me, that's a very, you know, fascinating um, uh, line of science where, you know, he's going into uh, a world that seems to be irrational and doesn't conform with sort of Western sense of rationality. And then he's trying to um, understand that. I think Wade Davis is one of his students, a Canadian. He's one of the official explorers uh, for, for National Geographic. Well, let's, um, let's plunge in here and uh, look at a, a particular uh, case. Now, timelines of the world, I find myself looking at this volume uh, quite a bit. Uh, it's basically set up around chronologies. And uh, so, um, here is uh, what happened in 1893. Uh, following the deposition of, Hawaii, of the Hawaiian uh, Queen, U.S. troops uh, move to annex the islands. So this is going to be uh, our discussion here of uh, uh, Lili Kalani, Liliwal Kalani. And uh, if, I, if we can go to the... Uh, so you can look her up on the internet. And uh, I'm going to try to um, include in my classes now, I'm going to surf the internet uh, and uh, um, I think uh, we need to talk a great deal about the Internet. Uh, I know there is a, a lot of uh, judgment about it in the, in the academy. When uh, I did my Ph.D., there was no such thing. Uh, how do you, for instance, you know, cite sources in the Internet? The Internet, uh, the idea of citing sources in your Ph.D. thesis, in your scientific papers is to give a, a connection to something that's permanent. The internet changes all the time, so it's not permanent. Um, I guess there's amazing ways you can cheat. Uh, you know, you can do plagiarism now in, you know, in, in all kinds of amazing ways. And, and there's, a, I think, a, a, a sort of bias in the academy, some, somehow not to quite deal with this. But on the other hand, this is a research tool unlike anything that has ever existed. And it, it's, it's a huge um, achievement for humanity, and it changes everything. And, and so I think we need to be you know, far more um, embracing and saying with all the problems that it might have, 
uh, you know, for citation, for plagiarism, whatever. Uh, it's basically a huge boom, boom to, uh, to knowledge. It changes the landscape of knowledge. So um, Wikipedia, uh, I think, is uh, by and large a brilliant uh, contribution to the to the internet. Uh, it's uh, put together by uh, people. If you want to make a, a revision to uh, to uh, Wikipedia, you can. So this is this is uh, many uh, individuals contributing to this. So Queen uh, Liliuok Kalani of Hawaii, originally named, also was a chosen royal name of later, was the last monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii. On September 16, 1862, she married. Uh, etc. Uh, Lily, she, she became, so we go here, Lily inherited the throne from her brother. Shortly after she gained power, she tried to abrogate the existing bayonet constitution. So you can look up bayonet constitution, of course, and, and uh, there is the brother. So it's very interesting, the, the uh, island of Hawaii, the Sandwich Islands, that's where James Cook met his uh, end. He was actually murdered by the indigenous people in Hawaii. Uh, there were tremendous uh, plagues. Uh, these Europeans, these people from the Euro-Asian continent brought with them diseases for which indigenous peoples in different parts of the world had a, no immunity. So um, uh, in the early 19th century, uh, with the population, indigenous population being uh, decimated, reduced, uh, missionaries from New England started to come to Hawaii and establish plantations, establish sugar plantations. And the indigenous peoples rallied themselves and created a kind of monarchy, largely based on the British system. Queen uh, Liliu Kalani was a good friend of Queen Victoria, and so uh, they were. She was adapting to that uh, to that um, situation, to that to those times. Um, she tried to reverse uh, the decisions of her brother, the Bayonet Constitution, which he was essentially a puppet of the U.S. planters. Uh, he was more or less a compliant. Uh, extension of their political will. Uh, Lilio Akalani, she um, was very dedicated to her own um, people, and she tried to reverse uh, the uh, shift in power that was essentially putting these rich uh, American planters in a position of power. Um, so she um, she Uh, tried to reverse this, and she was essentially taken out in a coup. Uh, the Americans, uh, Lauren Thurston, he uh, created a, an annexation committee. He met with the President of the United States. Of course, by this time, uh, the United States was building up its navy, and the importance of Pearl Harbor was great. So whoever would control that island uh, on a, on a naval basis would, would be uh, very important. 
that annexation could not have taken place without the agreement of Great Britain. So Great Britain essentially stepped aside and let the United States come in. Great Britain essentially stepped aside and let the United States and actually gave to the United States a big part of Canada, Canada north of the Ohio River. I mean, all that land north of the Ohio River was developed by the uh, fur trade of Montreal. That's how it came into globalization. So uh, U.S. backed away, uh, Great Britain backed away in that instance. Uh, it was fur traders from uh, Montreal who went down the Columbia River and opened that area to what we might call globalization. That was the way that uh, that area connected. So uh, Great Britain agreed to back off and, and uh, in 1846 in the, in the uh, Oregon Treaty, uh, in a sense gave up that part of what was in a way Canada to the United States. So Great Britain is backing away, and the United States is, in a way, moving into the imperial legacy of, 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 great, of great Britain. At least that's, uh, that's how I see it. So, um, so what I'm encouraging you to do in this instance is simply, uh, uh, so I'm telling you to uh, find out about Lilio Alcalani, uh, use the Internet, uh, and... Uh, uh, you, you may well find in a you know five weeks when when you've got to write a, a test that that will be one of uh, the names that uh, that you can uh, look at. So um, I, I was working on a well, actually chapter twelve of the bowl with one spoon, and here is a new book, uh, Stephen uh, Kinzer's Overthrow. Uh, America's uh, century of re regime change from Hawaii to uh, Iraq. And uh, uh, I was asked, you know, what, what, are the, what are the readings? Well, I want you to read in preparation for your book review the, the New Imperialist or the Lawless World. Uh, We're not seeing that, eh? Tony, I can't see what you're seeing. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Just to let you know. Yeah, we got this. So this is a brand new book, and so it's interest. It's 2006. So it's interesting. I think it's interesting how he makes this connection: America's century of regime change from uh, Hawaii to Iraq. And uh, here is a, a famous picture of her. This is the uh, Lauren Thurston, who was uh, the, the key operative in the annexation of Hawaii. Uh, this was the uh, ambassador to Hawaii who approved uh, the Marines to come in, John L. Stevens. So, so this uh, is the uh, initiating episode in uh, Kinzer's book, uh, looking at the role of the United States in, in regime change. Uh, this is one of the, uh, this is the first director of the CIA, uh, Alan Dulles with Eisenhower. And Alan Dulles uh, was very involved in the overthrow of uh, the regime of uh, Mossadegh in Iran and the Shah of Iran was put in place. Um, and then, of course, uh, Arbenz 
in Guatemala. Arbenz was, uh, was not a communist, but he was perceived as uh, accepting the communists as a legitimate part of the governing process in Guatemala. He was quite interested in land reform and uh, advanced a policy of land reform that was uh, contrary to the interests of the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company has a very significant history in the history of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, the role now played by the big oil companies, ExxonMobil, for instance, uh, go back to the history of the United Fruit Company. And uh, so, so in any case, this, this story of uh, uh, Hawaii starting a process where the United States increasingly um, intervened in, 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 a, in, in a global way to uh, change regimes, of course, and that, that's the big uh, point of contention now in the, in the, in the world. Uh, there's a great debate going on about whether the United States should be in Iraq, whether it was proper to invade Iraq. Um, was Lilio Pilani, was she uh, a despot uh, who was uh, taking her people backward? I mean, that was the argument made at the time. The argument made at the time was that she was committing a kind of treason. Um, here is her own um, version. So uh, this is... Uh, I recall that we're, we're, we're dealing with this question, you know, what is true? How do you identify truth? How do um, scientists do it? And of course, when you get into social sciences or humanities, it gets a lot, it gets a lot more um, questionable. How do, you, how do you identify what is true from what is not true? Well, here is uh, her, own, uh, her own words. So, in... Uh, in this, uh, in the social sciences, we always like to identify what we call the primary sources. Uh, this is my PhD thesis, which I completed in 1984. And so I was taught as a historian to uh, distinguish between primary sources and secondary sources. Primary sources being, uh, say, documents written at the time by the people actually engaged in making the history. So the, the instructions from my teachers, the, uh, the advice given, or even the directions given were, you know, if you want to if you want to do good history, you've got to go to the primary sources. You've got to go to the original sources. And in Native American studies, for instance, maybe you'd say, well, you've got to go and talk with the elders, and you've got to uh, because a lot of the information is imparted orally. And so um, this is a you know a case study in a sense as we go to this. And, of course, it goes through all the, the published collections of government documents, the different collections in uh, different archives. You identify it. A lot of my work had to do with missionaries and all the books they wrote. I considered that to be 
primary sources, and then uh, then you get to the secondary sources. And uh, bibliography is a secondary sources. So secondary sources, the idea is that people look at the primary sources, academics, others, and then they, they come up with their own interpretation. So let's say that uh, Kinzer's book counts as a um, secondary source. But... Um, Lilia Okelani's, uh, this is her own word, so we might think of this as a, as a uh, primary source. So let's just see a little bit about how she looked at what happened to her in, in, uh, in 1893. So this is her reflections, her memoirs. It, so if I start here, it, ha it had not entered our heart to believe that these friends and allies from the United States, even with all their foreign affinities, would ever go so far as absolutely overthrow our form of government, seize our nation by the throat, and pass, pass it over to an alien power. And while we ought to be peaceful, uh, and while we, ought sought to, while we sought to be peaceful, uh, we sought by peaceful political means to maintain the dignity of the throne, and to advance national feeling among the native people. We never sought to rob any citizen, wherever born, of either property, franchise, or social standing. Perhaps this is a kind of right, depending on precedence of all ages, known as the right of conquest, under which robbers and marauders may establish themselves in possession of whatsoever they are strong enough uh, to ravage from fellows. I will not pretend to decide how far civilization and, in Christ and Christian enlightenment have outlawed it. Uh, this is very powerful language to me. Is conquest a legitimate uh, position to take? Where did, uh, you know, did the United States pass over sovereignty to a regime in Iraq? Where did the United States get the sovereignty to give to to make a presentation of that sovereignty to Iraqis. Clearly, there's an understanding when well, we conquered the regime, conquest. So the sovereignty goes to us, and now we will, we will work with the Iraqis to, to pass back the sovereignty to them. Uh, so is conquest a legitimate uh, way of asserting jurisdiction, of gaining a power of government? Or is conquest by its very nature a violation of law, uh, uh, a, a, an abrogation of law, a negation Sorry? of law? Yeah. There's a, an example closer to home if you think of the Helms Burton Law, where through economic conquest, America made it illegal for a Canadian business to do business with Cuba, and they could get arrested even though they're Canadians. Yeah. Only I have a fantastic Okay, you got to... <laughs> I heard Larry King two or three years ago. As a matter of fact, it was February 1993, as they were debating whether to declare war on Iraq. Larry King looked at the audience and he says, the U.S. has never started a war. 
I almost fell off my chair. I went back and counted 13 times. They started the Revolutionary War. They started the War of 1812. They started the Civil War. They started the Mexican War and stole most of the south part of the United States. They started the Spanish-American War and stole the Philippines. And you then mentioned some, and I'm sure Mark's got a whole bunch. There's a prime, there's a secondary source that is just loaded with junk. It's amazing. Harry King said this. It must be true. Well, television. Uh, United States was founded against empire. United States was founded in a revolt against imperialism. The 13 colonies were part of the British Empire. So I would say that you could possibly characterize what we call the American Revolution as a civil war within British North America. You could characterize the American Revolution as a cessationist movement, as a separatist movement, because it involved one part of the British Empire trying to move out of the British Empire. So there, there is this tremendous uh, sensitivity in the United States to the idea, well, we're not, we don't build empires. And in, in a sense, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is not, there's no um, Saudi Arabia Act. It's not governed like India was governed by the British Empire or Canada was governed by the British Empire. Um, so much of uh, what we might call the American Empire now, it's, it's informal. You know, it, it doesn't have a, a formal legal structure. Um, and it's, I think it's designed to be that way. It's laissez-faire in a way. Um, Let's uh, go back to uh, Lily, Lily O'Kalani's, um, uh, her reflections. If we can uh, move to the... So she, she's uh, reflecting on this. She's obviously very embittered by this experience. Um, but we've known for many years that our island monarchy has relied upon uh, the protection always extended to us by by the policy and assured uh, friendship of the great American Republic. If we've nourished in our bosom those who have sought our ruin, it has been because we were a, a people whom we believed to be our dearest friends and allies. Uh, that they were the people who we believed to be our dearest friends and allies. If we did not uh, by force resist their final outrage, it was because we could not do without, a, uh, without striking at the military force of the United States. Whatever constraints uh, the executive of this country, of this great country, may be under to recognize the president's government in Honolulu, has been forced upon it by no act of ours, but by the unlawful acts of its own agents. Uh, the conspirators, having actually gained possession of the machinery of government <coughs> and the recognition of the foreign ministers, refused to surrender and their, uh, to surrender their conquest. So it happens that overawed by the power of the United States to the extent that they can neither themselves throw off the usurpers nor obtain assistance from other friendly states, the people of the islands have no voice in determining their future but are virtually relegated to the condition of the aborigines of the American continent. So obviously by comparing the native Hawaiians to the, to the aborigines, the Indians of the North American continent, this is... This is a very um, harsh, um, harsh language. Any, uh, and you know, other people are, are free to uh, 
come in. I know it's, uh, it's kind of like stepping up to the plate, you know, pushing the, uh, the green button and uh, um, it may be a little daunting, but uh, it certainly uh, uh, would be smiled upon. Um, let's um, just take this into the uh, present a little bit. Uh, so, so from Hawaii to Iraq, we've talked a little bit about what happened in, in, uh, in uh, Hawaii. Ideologies of empire, the new imperialists. One of the um, essays in here uh, deals with Michael Ignatius. Actually, uh, let's, let's say that Michael Ignatius is uh, one of the uh, people that will, that I'll consider it possible to test you about. Anybody, you must recognize that name. Can anybody speak up about what Michael Ignatieff is known for nowadays? Yep. Isn't uh, uh, Michael the uh, uh, current prospect for the uh, federal liberal uh, leadership and a one-time Harvard professor? That's right. So Michael Ignatieff is uh, he's been a very um, successful professor, university professor. He's been at uh, Harvard. He um, he's done a lot of media work for the BBC. Um, so in uh, this article, uh, we can go to the here's a here's an article in the in one of your two books. Uh, Imperial Narcissism, Michael Ignatius' Apologies for Empire. So the premise of the new imperialists is essentially to look at the new rationales for empire and uh, the new arguments being developed for what had been called imperialism in another era. And so this uh, author here, David McNally, is focusing on, um, on Ignatius. And Ignatius is uh, the front runner in uh, the contest to lead the Liberal Party. So Ignatius, supporter of the war in Iraq. Uh, he, he was a supporter of the invasion of Iraq by the United States too. Yeah. Publicly. Well, here he is on the in the cover article of the New York Times. In. Uh, January 5th, 2003. And so he has uh, written an article here called um, American Empire, Get Used to It. And so he has supported uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, with the view that Saddam Hussein, that regime, was so corrupt, was so, uh, such a negative uh, effect such a uh, ruthless uh, oppressor of some of its own people. Uh, Sharia, uh, you know, it's a, he's, he's a Sunni. Uh, he was a, oppressed the Sharia Muslim majority and especially the Kurds, who are not Arabs at all. Um, that was uh, Ignatius' uh, rationale. But in this article, um, Ignatius' position is that uh, we might as well get used to the American empire. And in fact, the American empire could be made a vehicle for 
greater uh, human rights, for greater democracy, uh, that uh, we, in a pragmatic way, look at the world and say the world is you know, in great disorder, it's quite uh, anarchistic, the United States have wealth, they have power, they have the capacity to uh, intervene and bring order um, to a disorderly world. And so that is, uh, that's the uh, thesis of Ignatius, his general approach. Let's uh, read a sample um, paragraph here. Uh, America's empire is not like empires of, of past built on colonies, conquests, and the white man's burden. We are no longer in the era of the United Fruit Company, which I just mentioned, when American corporations needed the Marines to secure their investments overseas. The 21st century imperium uh, is a new invention in the annals of political science, an empire light. There's a phrase that he often, he's got a book by that name, empire light. A global hegemony whose grace uh, notes are free markets, human rights, and democracy enforced by the most awesome military power the world has ever known. It is the imperialism of a people who remember that their country secured its independence by revolt against an empire and who like to think of themselves as the friends of freedom everywhere. It is an empire without consciousness of itself as such. There's your, there's your point, uh, Howard. Uh, Larry King has no consciousness of, of, of that, of that Did empire. Did you say conscience or consciousness? Consciousness. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, but that, uh, but that does not make it any less of an empire with the conviction that it alone, as Herman uh, Melville's words bears, uh, the arc of the liberties of the world. So, um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a very uh, clear debate, I guess. You know, what is true? How do we how do we perceive the role of the United States in in in, in the world? Um, can we go back to what happened in Hawaii and draw uh, out a series of connections uh, that lead us through uh, the Spanish-American War? that lead us through uh, intervention in Central America, sending in the troops into Honduras or uh, Haiti or um, uh, uh, Nicaragua. Um, can we uh, see what happened in um, Iran? Where you had in Iran a government leader, an elected leader, who wanted to take control of oil. Uh, wanted to take control of what the British had developed, British petroleum in Iran. Uh, basically, Kermit uh, Roosevelt was sent in with a with a suitcase with a million dollars, and uh, there was a very clearly a, a, a coup to take out uh, the individual leader who was trying to nationalize the oil and put in its place uh, the Shah of Iran. Uh, this was the pattern in uh, Guatemala, and uh, and certainly it was the pattern in Chile. Um, so um, how probably do how do we hope, read this? Yeah. Probably the hope in Venezuela too. Well, we probably know that. You was, and, we know that uh, there has been um, an attempt to take out Hugo Chavez, and uh, uh, it, it seems there is a. Uh, 
a very large constituency of largely poor people in Venezuela who really uh, back him up. Uh, Hugo Chavez is very close to uh, Fidel Castro. And uh, actually, when I was in Cuba just recently, uh, the first thing I heard from a tour guide is, you know, we, we, we used to be backed by the Soviet Union. Now we get a lot of our backing from, uh, from Venezuela. So, um, uh, on, on, on this uh, subject, you know, what is a primary source? Now, is this a primary source? I mean, I, I would say, in a way, historians would look back at this article by, by Ignatieff and say, you know, here's a primary source. Um, 